Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we go through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in with us today, we are on day 197. We're almost at the 200 point. How crazy is that? Uh, But if you're reading along with us and you have questions, we want to answer those questions for you. So I'd love for you to send them in. Uh, It can be anything we're reading, talking about, anything that doesn't make sense, maybe in our discussion, uh, even correcting a uh, miscommunication of a word choice, which has happened to me as before as well. So you're more than welcome to send in those questions or those typo corrections. Uh, there's three ways. One is an email. Email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question or statement. Uh, or you can direct message us on social media. We have a Facebook page and an Instagram page, uh, both of which are the Grove CH as our handles. Uh, so you can direct message us on those two platforms as well. All right. Well, listeners, this week, Hezekiah is still on the throne. So we're this yes, is, this is, is getting close to, I'm sure it won't be as long, but this is getting close to David territory. Oh, snap. Of like, we're just reading a bunch. Right now, we're going to spend most of our time this week in the book of Isaiah. Uh, or as our friends across the pond would say, Isaiah. So Isaiah. I, I like that one better. I think Isaiah is more fun to say. It sounds more exotic to us, I suppose. Yes, there you go. Um, but then we're also going to have, we're going to be in Micah today as well as uh, spend some time in uh, Kings and Chronicles. So we'll, you know, we'll have a nice little smattering of, uh, of readings for this week. Uh, but we'll be, we will be kicking it off in Isaiah and we'll be starting in chapter 18, which is an interesting oracle concerning Cush, which is a, uh, maybe modern day Ethiopia. Um, probably a little bit northwest of that is what we'd be saying. So, but it's it's in that basic region is kind of the idea there. Uh, in this oracle, God communicates that He will work even in the most remote places, which certainly Cush would be one of those if you're <laughs> yes. if you're looking at it from the uh, the vantage point of the Israelites, uh, and even when no one is looking. Chapter 19 concerns Egypt. Uh, a lot of Isaiah concerns Egypt, <laughs> and so it is kind of funny how you have this. It's almost this full circle moment where. Uh, the nation of Israel, not the people of Israel, but kind of like the nation, the kingdom of Israel is founded when God takes the people out of Egypt and brings them into the promised land. Uh, and it falls with the, spoiler alert, uh, with the people of Israel trusting in Egypt to protect them from uh, powers that are coming for them. So it's kind of interesting how Egypt goes from being the mighty oppressor that the Israelites escaped to all of a sudden kind of being their uh, misplaced, but their final hope for where their salvation is going to come from. So not great. Uh, And then, like I said, chapter 19, it concerns Egypt and particularly the coming judgment from Yahweh that will bring them down. Uh, However, after this, there is a promise of a coming redemption for Egypt, including Israel serving as a blessing between the nations of Egypt and Assyria, which is kind of a cool idea. Uh, it's a picture of these mighty empires kind of bowing down and worshiping God, which would make me think this isn't pointing to something that actually happens in history. This is pointing to the new heavens, the new earth, when essentially it it will be Egypt and Assyrians, but also just the the idea of the great powers of the earth are going to, are going to worship the Lord together. So I think a lot of Isaiah, you'll see that some of it is fulfilled in history. Some of it is fulfilled not yet fulfilled, but will be fulfilled one day. And some of it's kind of in the middle where it has a little bit of a fulfillment now and then a little bit of fulfillment later on as well. So Isaiah, I was telling Aaron as we were prepping this, Isaiah is kind of a, 
it's a harder book to kind of go through when I'm putting together notes just because like I'm having to pause all the time to be like, okay, wait, what's this saying here? Like, how does this connect? All the different stuff. It's not like some other books where you can kind of just power through and it's all pretty obvious as far as what it's meaning. Uh, chapter 20 continues God's word against Cush in Egypt. Isaiah is commanded to walk naked and barefoot for three years to demonstrate that this will be the fate of the people of Cush in Egypt when Assyria captures them. So there we see, you know, every not every prophet, but a lot of the prophets, they have to do a, a weird thing or two that God calls them to do as a as an example. And this one is a, uh, this one's one of Isaiah's where he just gets to be naked for a few years and walk and barefoot, which would suck. And especially in that time yep. uh, and just walk around. At least it's him. not snowing. And when people are like, hey, Isaiah, why are you naked and barefoot? He'll be like, yeah, <laughs> you should see the Egyptians and the Cushites, bud, uh, later. Uh, so anyway, that was a dumb joke. Uh, chapter <laughs> I'm t- laughing at you because it was a dumb joke, but it was yeah. a good effort. What are you going to do? I'm going to blame it on the dad fog. Uh, chapter 21 starts with an oracle against Babylon, foretelling the city's eventual fall. And I, lo- I love the way it's described. So this is uh, chapter 21, verses 8 through 9. Then he who I saw, then he who saw, cried out, "Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, and at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. For he and he answers, fallen, fallen is Babylon, and the carved images of her gods he has shattered on the ground. So it's this picture of uh, messengers riding in, and they're just distraught and saying that not only has Babylon fallen, but all of the idols of that great city have been shattered. It reminds me of Dagon. Remember, listener. This is months ago now, I guess, at this point. But uh, when the Ark of the Covenant is captured and brought into uh, what Philistine city is it? I don't remember. Shoot, Gath is that the one? Anyway, I don't, sorry, sorry, listeners. Uh, but I it's, don't remember. It's brought it's brought into the city to the temple of Dagon, and then they wake up in the morning, and the idol of Dagon is fallen down, and eventually is broken apart. It's kind of the similar picture here. Uh, as we continue the oracle. Uh, it, it deals with some other nations as well. So Edom is told that there is no answer for how much longer they will endure, which I kind of love that. So Edom is, you know, remember, it's kind of the sister nation to Israel. Uh, they should be close, but they drift apart over time. And eventually Edom becomes one of Israel's, you know, great, great enemies as well. Uh, so they're crying out, asking how much longer will we have to endure? And God's like, yeah, you don't get to know. <laughs> no answers for you. Uh, Arabia is told that they will have many refugees looking for safety in their land, which again, speaking of places that would have been remote, to the ancient Israelites, Arabia is kind of just the vast wilderness slash desert. Uh, and so when it's saying that there's going to be sojourners looking for, uh, or refugees looking for shelter there, it's saying that something cataclysmic is going to happen to force people into the wilderness <laughs> in order to find salvation. Uh, Jerusalem gets a sneak preview of the fall of the city coming in a few generations, which that comes up a few times in Isaiah. And then Tyre and Sidon uh, are they're great trading cities that are on the coast and they're, they'll be laid to waste. However, we are told that Tyre will eventually have a moment of redemption and be rebuilt. Tyre's kind of, I don't remember where Sidon is, but Tyre's in the northwest. Um, it's not within the borders of Israel, but if it might be within modern day Israel. It might be in Jordan. I don't remember. Or not Jordan, Lebanon. That's the one that's to the north, right? Yeah. I just, <coughs> listeners, I'm in a fog again today. I'm sorry. So it's... Oh, I don't know how I remember the things you remember. So babies are just—it's—it's—it's it's, it's taking my memory. My son is taking my memory <laughs> from me. <laughs> it's terrible, Aaron. Just terrible. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Welcome to dadhood, bro. I know. What are you gonna do? All right. Well, anyway, it's it's up in the northwest. It's in one of those modern day nations now. I don't remember. Uh, but it's a yeah, it's a big trading city, and it's saying it's going to be laid to waste. It eventually, will be rebuilt. 
And then chapter 24 starts off a new series of oracles uh, that seem to point to the end of the world. So, or kind of like Armageddon, we might call it, or the new heavens and new earth with the, uh, with the added benefit of knowing, you know, everything that's revealed to us in Revelation. Uh, and it's, it's not looking, it's not looking good <laughs> at the start. As this is Isaiah 24, starting in verse one, uh, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. Um, and the language there kind of just reminds me of Ecclesiastes a little bit, of where it talks about how death is coming for everyone. Here it's the Lord's judgment is coming for everyone. And it doesn't matter, master, slave, mistress, maid, seller, buyer, borrower, lender, debtor, creditor. It's it, the God's judgment is coming for you. Uh, as we continue... Uh, we see that this destruction has come as a punishment for the breaking of God's law. And we see that the people of earth are essentially, it's, it's kind of an interesting passage, but it seems like they're seeing the coming destruction and they're just deciding to get drunk in despair over this. Um, however, the tone shifts and the people begin to worship God and we see Yahweh reign over the world and his glory, it's, it's said that his glory outshines the sun and the moon. Chapter 25 uh, continues with a picture of God's coming redemption of the world, including this particularly beautiful message. And this is uh, Isaiah chapter 25, starting verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and reproach. And the reproach, reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. And we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So again, I think it's important that, and Isaiah is not like, you know, it's not one of the most hopeless prophetic books. Like, you know, we're going to get we're going to get to some of those here in a little bit where it's That's essentially true. there's a, there's judgment coming. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, but even in the parts of Isaiah that seem kind of the most hopeless, it's a reminder that God's redemption is always there. Um, and even, even when God's redemption is no longer there as an option to avoid the physical destruction of Jerusalem, it is still there to uh, for the people and to remind them that, hey, even after all this goes down, you're going to be brought back. Uh, chapter 26 continues the picture of God's redemption. I particularly love these lines. Uh, it says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And I just, I, don't, I love those lines. I highlighted them forever ago. I, and like my, one of my first Bibles when I was reading through Isaiah, I read that and I highlighted it. So it's always stood out to me um, ever since I was a wee lad. A wee little guy. And by wee lad, I don't know. I mean, I was probably a teenager when I highlighted it, but <laughs> all right. So uh, as we continue on, we see that God's people were painfully awaiting his coming redemption. Uh, the metaphor being used here is pregnancy and birth. So in other words, it's kind of like going through the pain of waiting for this thing to happen and kind of just the relief after it's done. Uh, both the redemption of the righteous and punishment of the wicked is a relief to God's people. Chapter 27 kicks off by saying that Yahweh will destroy <coughs> Leviathan. Uh, in this case, it's, it's definitely a mythical creature and not a crocodile. <laughs> so remember in Job, we hear Leviathan and Behemoth are kind of the two big Creatures that may or may not be mythical, may or may not be, um, you know, a crocodile and a hippo. And if you really want them to be dinosaurs, you know, I won't take that away from you. Uh, but here it's definitely referring to a mythical sea monster, Leviathan. Uh, as And I guess I should say too, remember that in ancient Mesopotamian myth, 
uh, a lot of the creation stories involved kind of chaos chaos waters or gods of chaos that had to be subdued in order for the world to be made. So when it talks about God having power over the waters or over like, you know, massive sea creatures and things like that, it's essentially saying that God has power over um, the creation in the world and, and, and the chaos that reigns. Uh, as it continues, we see that the world is now so peaceful that God almost wishes something would come up so he could do something about it, which is a, <laughs> it's a funny passage. It's true. Uh, but it's said in a really beautiful way. So this is in Isaiah chapter 27. It says, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns or briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. And this is what I saw. So, hey, right there is God saying, there's nothing going wrong. I want something to go wrong. Um, but I love this because he says, if there were thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them. I would burn them up together or, and this is verse five, let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. And so I, I think that's such a great picture of God's heart that He's long, not longing might be the wrong word, but basically saying like, man, there's nothing going wrong. I want to rise up and defend um, this garden. But when it's there, it's not just full wrath. It's also, I, w- I want to see these enemies so that they can make peace with me and they can be redeemed as well. Um, and I think that gives a picture into God's relationship with us, that it is the fact that we are being redeemed is something that God finds joy in. Which yeah. I think is, I think it's a really cool. And this is, this is just a hidden away passage in Isaiah, right? I don't remember ever hearing this being taught on, but I think it's a really beautiful picture of God's desire for redemption. Oh, we are also told at the end that even those who are lost in Assyria or Egypt will be redeemed and worship Yahweh, which we'll see there's massive population. I mean, we've already seen Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel is scattered in in Assyria. Um, There's a remnant that goes from Judah that goes into Egypt as well. So we'll see both of these big people groups there. Uh, That's a little bit later, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, we skip forward to chapter 29, where we look forward to the eventual fall of Jerusalem. In this passage, God makes it clear that he doesn't care about the empty worship of Judah and that their observance of festival mean, festivals means nothing. Later in the passage, however, it is also made clear that the nations will rise against Judah, that the nations that rise against Judah will be blown away like chaff. God is sovereign over all. And so I kind of like this picture of um, essentially God is punishing Judah for what they've done, but the nations that are being used, he's like, yeah, that w- once they're done being useful, they're going to go away. And we see this, right? Like Assyria uh, destroys Israel and then they're blown away in a few generations. Babylon conquers them. Babylon conquers Judah. And in a few, gen- in less than 70 years, they're gone and Persia takes over. So God uses those two great empires as punishment for his two kingdoms, but they're both gone really soon afterwards. So you can't see that God is definitely sovereign over all of this. Uh, chapter 30, begins with a warning for the people of Israel not to put their faith into Egypt to protect them. Again, just I, I just can't get over how ironic it is that like they, not a few generations ago, I guess a, a long list of generations ago, but they're trying to get away from the oppression of the Pharaoh. And now they're like, Pharaoh, save us. So I don't know. You, say, you never get over your first love. Full cycle, bro. Full cycle. Uh, as it goes on, we see the ongoing rebellion of Israel. And yet we also see God's mercy on full display. Uh, chapter 31 is yet another reminder of the people of Israel not to trust in Egypt. Uh, it says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong. 
But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will perish together. Um, I love that line, just the Egyptians are men, not gods. So it's just a great picture of Yahweh reminding his people that, no, no, like, I'm I'm in charge. I can do this. <laughs> I'm in charge. And they forget Look it. at me. I'm the captain. I know, I'm the captain. I'm, I'm, I've been the captain for all eternity, and you guys keep forgetting it. Uh, chapter 32 gives us a look at the coming Messiah with language pointing towards a new and everlasting peace. Uh, yeah, Isaiah has a lot of messianic prophecies. If you don't know what that means, that means they're prophecies that are about Jesus. Um, and we, it's kind of, it's funny because we don't know all of them. And all of a sudden when Jesus comes, a bunch of them are like, oh, oh, got it. This is what it's referring to. Uh, later in the chapter, the women of Israel who have joined the men in being apathetic, uh, in their worship towards God, they are condemned by God specifically. We see this happen a couple of times where um, a lot of times the condemnation of God is if it's not towards the people, usually it's focused on the men, uh, but there are a couple of chapters where God singles out the, the ladies as well. And like, hey, you guys are falling short as well. Uh, chapter 33 shows the people of Judah crying out for deliverance and Yahweh answers them uh, and, and delivers his people. In chapter 34, uh, it declares God's judgment on the surrounding nations who have come against Jerusalem. And then finally, as far as my readings of Isaiah, Aaron, I'll go back into some. But in chapter 35, we see a beautiful picture of Yahweh's redeemed returning to Jerusalem. Uh, and this is probably looking forward to post-exile, right? So Jerusalem in a few generations will fall uh, to Babylon. The people live in exile for 70 years. And then under uh, Cyrus the Great, the Jews are allowed to return back into Jerusalem. And so we get this picture. It says, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Um, and I love the, I love the the word here as well, because we use redeemed a lot, but I love ransomed as well, right? Like as, as in God paid the ransom for his people and, 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 and bought them. So I, I think it's a beautiful picture there. Uh, but we're not just reading Isaiah today. Uh, I'm also reading through Micah. So this is Micah chapters two through five. And jumping over there, we see a major theme of some of the prophets again being tackled. And this is the wickedness of God's chosen people. Um, and you see that God gets ex uh, extremely angry over the wickedness of Judah because specifically because they have the law, right? Like he's like, yeah, of course, Babylon is wicked because they're a bunch of, you know, godless heathens over there in the East, but you are my chosen people. You have the law, you have relationship with me and, and yet you are being wicked. And so we see that it's, it's kind of the, it's the wickedness of God's people specifically that, that just enrages him as well. And then the hypocrisy of it where, and this is more, this isn't necessarily addressed in the, in these passages, but it's when people go and they sacrifice and they go to the festivals and they do their thing and they're just sinning all the way and they don't care, right? That just infuriates the Lord. Um, so, and yeah, we see that people in Judah are cheating their neighbors out of their lands and homes and, and Yahweh is furious over this and promises judgment. In chapter three, we see that this is not just a problem of the lay people of Judah, but this is also a problem with the rulers and the prophets. Uh, and it gets pretty scary. So this is what God has to say here. It says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead the people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who, put, who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, 
It shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and in, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They, ha- they shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So essentially... God has gotten so angry with the prophets that he's saying, okay, yeah, no more, no more divine revelation. You guys are, you guys are spoiling it. And so not, then that's not to say there won't be any more because we do see some of the prophets rise up. But and I do think this is kind of an important distinction that there are the prophets who wrote books of the Bible, but there's also just kind of a group of the prophets. And we don't like, there's some, yeah, there's some true. where we see like a mention of like, I forgot the guy's name, but who's the, Ah, man, there's a prophet that goes up to one of the kings of Israel and he like, oh, to Jehu. And he's like, he tears up, um, not to Jehu, Jeroboam the first, when he tears up the cloak and he gives him 10 pieces. Yeah. Yeah, So that's just a guy. (laughs) Like he's he's in that one story and that's it. And then there's another one who goes to Jehu. I forgot what his thing is, but we just, you see him that sentence and that's in. Um, I remember... I think it's Obadiah who saves a thousand prophets and we don't know anything about them other than that he stashed 500 of them in one cave and 500 of them in another one. Um, so there's a bunch of prophets that we don't necessarily hear about who who also get words from the Lord and they try and tell and they tell people um, essentially to, hey, follow the law. <laughs> like this is what God has told you to do. Uh, but now that's, that institution is coming to an end because it's become corrupt as well. Um, as we continue, uh, we see the destruction of Jerusalem and in particular the temple foretold, which again, put yourself into the mind of a first century Jew reading about this. The idea of the temple being destroyed would have been nuts. The idea of Jerusalem falling would have been insane. Um, but yet both of these things are going to happen and, and Isaiah is telling the people about this. Uh, chapter four then shows us a future time. When Jerusalem is restored, stating that Yahweh will rescue Zion. And remember, Zion is the mountain uh, that Jerusalem is built upon. Uh, Chapter 5 gives us a picture of the coming Messiah, which gives us this noticeable, notable passage. And so this is, this will be a famous one that's read around Christmas all the time, but it's, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who, I don't know if I said that correctly. Uh, who are okay, too, it sounds like it. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Um, so I love that kind of messianic picture there. And we find out, hey, okay, this this Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, famously, Aaron, there's someone who's born in Bethlehem that matches that description, but we'll get there, to him. There is, you're right. We will get to, we'll get to our few Lord and Savior in a few months here. Uh, And then finally, to wrap up my readings for today, uh, chapter five ends with a reminder that this remnant will be delivered um, and that while God's judgment is coming, it is not a final separation. And so, yeah, even when God is so angry with the people of Israel and Judah for rejecting him and he allows them to be conquered and allows them to be scattered, it's not a final death nail. Like they're still his people. He still protects them. We see in... Uh, you know, in the story of Esther, when all of that goes down, that's God working almost behind the scenes in a way uh, to keep them protected. But God loves his people. And I think it's an important reminder for us today as well, that um, the punishment or the discipline of God is not a final separation. Um, there, it, It's kind of like, you know, if, if you... Uh, 
if your parents never disciplined you, they were probably bad parents. No offense, but like, you know what I mean? Like if they're, if like, you know, if it's just like, ah, you know. You got little Timmy saying, what are you talking about? My mom and dad let me get away with everything. I know. Yeah. Like if you see your kid just completely misbehaving and you're not doing something to like help them out, like that's not, that's not great. That's not the way that you want a parent. It's the same with God, right? When the discipline of God shows that he loves and cares about us. And so I think it's a good thing to keep in mind there. Uh, well, that wraps it up for my readings today, but Aaron's got, some, he's going to continue on with Micah and then we'll tell a little bit more uh, stories about the Bible. So it's a good time. But before we do, uh, we do want to take a moment to ask you to leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's where it helps us out the most. Uh, Spotify, we crossed 200. So thank you. Let's for, go. Thank you for that. Uh, and then on Apple Podcasts, if you leave a written review, because you can on that platform, we will read it on the air just because we like to give our, our listeners a Shout out. Uh, and just like we're doing four. I'm pretty sure it's Bay the Fay. Bay the Fay? I said bye earlier. I was like, no, 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 this is Bay because it rhymes with Fay. So, I, I like it. Uh, so this this individual wrote, great podcast. I love listening to this. It's helping me understand the concepts uh, in the Bible. Uh, and so we appreciate that. That's kind of one of the goals that we have and just trying to aspire to um, helping everybody understand, even as ourselves, as we are diving into scripture and learning more about it. And so we appreciate you. Uh, Bay of the Fay uh, for leaving us a review or written a comment as well. So thank you for joining, uh, being part of the podcast community here with us at Let's Read the Bible. Um, I will be honest, I got called out by one of our uh, attenders because oh my apparently gosh. in our online virtual lobby I was hosting this week and I called our podcast Let's Read the Bible Together. That is true. Um, to be fair, that's where this podcast started from was with a reading plan called Let's Read the Bible Together. So Anna, I'm sorry that I missed pronounced... Um, the title of our podcast. So don't judge me so much. Uh, yes, back into the podcast content. So Micah 6 and 7, we wrap up the book of Micah. Uh, I told Evan earlier, I feel like we're coming to a very the, the cliff of the Old Testament where uh, we're cranking through history, and I just feel like the bottom is going to drop off because we're going to finish up the book. Uh, and I'm in my mind, I'm always thinking once I get to Ezra, Nehemiah, and that whole deal, once I get to those books, that it just, it goes into the prophets at that point. So this, that's not happening this year. We're actually reading through. And once we get to those two things, uh, it'll kind of end and we'll jump in the New Testament. So it's kind of, it's coming quickly. Uh, Micah 6 and 7 is where we wrap up the book of Micah, like I've already said. So Micah chapter 6 uh, is God now through Micah presenting his case against Judah. Uh, you, see, you see in Micah this, this judicial um, presentation. It's, you see in a lot of the prophets, actually, this idea like, God's putting his people on trial. He's actually going to be judge, jury, and defender. Uh, and so he, he, you see in this chapter that where God is putting and presenting his case against Judah, uh, he'll then, Micah will then in turn defend God's benevolent actions. You'll hear this response from God's people uh, in verses six and seven. This is what it says. This is God's response, God's people's response to the uh, accusations. It says, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Who Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression? No, you should not. Uh, the offspring of my own body for my own sin. Uh, mankind, and then it says this in verse 8, which is like Micah's return to the basis for the judgment. And it says, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what is what it is the Lord requires of you. And this is a very familiar and very famous passage out of Micah. And it says this, this is what in essence God has told his people to do, to act justly, to love faithfulness, or to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. Uh, and so it's, you see in this chapter, as it wraps up, you know, it continues to talk about specific accusation, accusations, and then the pronouncement of verdict and the punishment that exists because they're guilty and he provides punishment. Uh, but you're seeing this response from God's people. It's like, well, what, what, what are we supposed to do? He doesn't like our, our sacrifices. Should we give him a thousand to make him, to make everything right? Should we sacrifice our firstborn? Like, what should we do? Uh, and Micah's response is, he's told you to act justly, to love faithfulness or mercy is another translation. Uh, or in to walk humbly with God. And and that's the challenge that Micah leaves with his people. He, then the pronouncement of God's judgment, which is guilty, and then the punishment that is soon, ensues. Uh, and then we get to Micah chapter 7, uh, which you see Micah's response. And I thought this was actually pretty interesting because um, I don't read Micah very often. Uh, the famous passages I read, but I don't read Micah very often yeah, it's on not, my regular It's not a reading. book that you often go back to. Nope. Uh, but you see in Micah chapter 7, his response. And so it's the first seven verses. I'm going to read it. Um, so the judgment has been pronounced. The punishment is is being been pronounced. And then Micah begins to see the decline of Israel. Uh, and he says this in verse 1. He says, How sad for me, for I'm like one who, when the summer fruit has been gathered, after the gleaning of the grape harvest, finds no grape clusters to eat, no early fig, which I crave. Faithful people have vanished from the land. There is no one upright among them. All of them wait in ambush to shed blood. They hunt each other without a net. So you hear the anguish of Micah as he's seeing God's people and his the people whom he loves is is declining into depravity, is declining into sinfulness and rejection and rebellion. Uh, it says there's no faithful people. Verse three of chapter seven says both hands are good at accomplishing evil. The official and the judge demand a bribe. When the powerful man communicates his evil desire, they plot it together. Uh, and and it's just this sad picture where there's no distinguishment between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, and he says this again in verse four says the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is the worst. Uh, then a hedge of thorns is worse than a, the hedge of thorns. The day of your watchman, the day of your punishment is coming. At this time, their panic is here. And he says this in verse five, and just reading all the way through verse seven, says, do not rely on a friend. Don't trust in a close companion. Seal your mouth from the woman who lies in your arms. Surely a son considers his father a fool. A daughter opposes her mother, and a daughter-in-law is against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. And then he says this, but I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And you see in chapter seven, his response to the judgment, your response to the accusation, the response to God's people, and he's devastated. But he then he but he continues to put his hope in the Lord. He says, I will wait and look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation and my God will hear me. Uh, and in the rest of chapter seven, then you'll see that the focus will shift away from the current setting and the current rebellion of his people and actually jump into a focus on the day of destruction that's to come, uh, the future of the Lord, uh, when the Lord, sorry, the future when the Lord will reverse the judgment and then in turn restore Israel. And so it says in chapter seven, uh, verse seven, chapter seven, verse seven, I will look to the Lord, I will wait, my God will hear me. And then he looks ahead to the day of redemption. He looks ahead where God will, he says in chapter seven, that he will forgive sinners who don't deserve the mercy. Uh, and so you see this ending of chapter of the book of Micah with this hope for the future and the coming redemption of God himself. Uh, and so that's where the book of Micah ends up. Uh, in our reading, we continue, we're actually shifting a little bit in our reading where we're actually reading three books that are kind of overlapping the same story in second Chronicles, second Kings, and then Isaiah. Uh, and so you'll see in Isaiah, there's like his, this historical account of the things that play out within Hezekiah's life. Um, 
that leads us all the way up until his death. Uh, we don't, he doesn't die yet. He'll die next week. Um, spoilers. Oh my gosh. So, but we get to the end of his life here. Uh, and so this first section, I just kind of try to break it down in what each passage, each reading covers. Um, and so this first section that we'll read in second Chronicles 32 is this invasion of Sennacherib. Uh, we see the same thing continued, the same parallel accounts in Isaiah, uh, chapter 36, as well as second Kings chapter 18. Um, but it, he Hezekiah sees the, the coming war with Assyria and King Sennacherib. In other words, he sees them beca- begin to, to come into Judah. They begin to k- take over uh, territories and land. Uh, and so he fortifies this city. I think this is actually probably one of the, like, the highlights of Hezekiah's life is he sees this coming. He fortifies this city. It says he builds the, the, the fortresses. He raises and elevates the walls and he, he bolsters it up. And then it says that he stops. Uh, he stops the water from, from flowing outside and he builds this, uh, pool in the city of Jerusalem and then also builds a tunnel. It's called the Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, that allows water to go down to the lower part of the city too. So that way there's water. So in essence, they fortify themselves and have a clean, pure water source that the Assyrians cannot taint or disrupt or, or cut off that they themselves have established and Hezekiah established an ability to have clean water and a source of, of thriving water so they can withstand the incoming siege, the upcoming siege. Uh, and then he says this in chapter, uh, he says this, and we see this in Second Chronicles chapter 32, verses 6 to 8. He said, this gives an idea of what he did. He, he set the military commanders over the people and gathered the people in the square of the city gate. Then he enc- encouraged them and saying, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged before the king of Assyria or before the large army that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. He is only human. He has only human strength, but we have the Lord, our God to help us and fight our battles. So the people relied on the words of King Hezekiah of Judah. So this incredible moment happens. Hezekiah rallies his, his people. He, he, he fortifies himself. Um, and then he encourages them. And the be strong and courageous is a familiar passage from Joshua. It's true. He draws it forward and reminds them why their strength, why they should be strong and courageous is because God is bigger and more powerful than the largest army that is here. You can bring them. What a what a good king. I know. What wow. A, yeah, man. He's he's just checking boxes, bro. He's just checking boxes. Uh, then we see this parallel account in Second Kings chapter eighteen. Uh, it adds the insight that Hezekiah asked for the king of Syria to leave him alone, which this is kind of a bummer, right? He's checking some boxes. Uh, Assyria's come in. Sennacherib's come in. He sends out a, a letter saying, hey, please leave us alone. Please pass over us. Don't come and bring trouble. He says, I'll pay you whatever you want. So the tribute that he's asked to give from Sennacherib is, in essence, all the silver and gold in the treasuries in the king's house, as well as the gold from the doorposts of the temple. Uh, and so, so Hezekiah then acquiesces and gives, uh, pays the tribute and hopes that he'll be left alone. Uh, he's left alone ish. Um, but he, this, it's the one kind of blip that we see in this part of the story so far. And well, at least he didn't, you know, cheat on his wife and have, have her husband killed. So <laughs> there's worse things that could uh, have someone happened. Did that. Who did that? Anyways, uh, Isaiah 36 introduces the same arrival of King Sennacherib and the Assyrian army. Uh, and then we get this section where I, I titled the Royal Spokesman speech. Uh, and this is 2 Kings 18, 19 to 37, followed by Isaiah 36, 4 to 22. Um, and it's we don't have a Chronicles account of this, but in essence, this documents the speech of Sennacherib's spokesman. 
they stand on this point, boasting, uh, kind of speaking loudly in Hebrew, speaking to the city of Jerusalem in Hebrew, boasting about their dominance, that no other nation has been able to conquer them. Uh, don't listen to Hezekiah. They're really trying to discourage the people from trusting in Hezekiah. Uh, they explain that every other nation that they've conquered those nations, gods could not save them. Uh, and so the same thing is going to happen here. The great and mighty Sennacherib, he's going to conquer you as well. Your God's not going to be able to save him because he's greater than all the other gods, including yours. Uh, and so there's this moment where the officials of Hezekiah ask him not to speak in Hebrew. Hey, speak to us in Aramaic. Don't speak to us in Hebrew because that way all the people of Israel won't understand. So they speak all the more in Hebrew loudly. Uh, and then the pe- And then they tell them, uh, this is what they say to the people, 2 Kings verses, chapter 18, verses 28 to 35. It says, The royal spokesman stood and called out loudly in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. He can't rescue you from my power. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord by saying, Certainly the Lord will rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then each of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree, and each may drink from his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, so that you may live and not die. But don't listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, The Lord will rescue us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever rescued his his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharavim? Hina and Eva, have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of the lands has rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power? So you see the speech that's very compelling where the king of Assyria is saying, hey, just you're going to live. You'll be fine. You'll eat of your vine. You'll drink of the water. You'll, you'll eat of the produce of the land. And then I'll come and I'll take you, not by force, but I'll just take you to a, a land just like your own. And he's making this plea to say, like, hey, listen, it's not going to be as bad for you if you if you just surrender to me. Yeah, he's got real mouth of Sauron vibes, if we're being honest. <laughs> it's just like, I don't trust this guy as far as I could throw him. But if you don't know who Sauron is, he's from Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Also, like, I feel like, I, don't know, I feel like, like Hezekiah can be like, hey, like, we saw what you did to Israel. <laughs> like, that's not, it's not like, that's a big mystery that none of us are aware of. Like, we know that they're all scattered now. So I don't know. Like, I feel like. Sennacherib must think these guys aren't the, they're not the, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't think Hezekiah is very smart. I think is what's coming. That or he's just so inflated with his own ego. True. He he can handle it. So anyway, so you hear on one hand, Hezekiah, who's fortifying his position as his city. He's providing and and, and doing and creating systems that will actually help them withstand the incoming siege. Then you have the other side of the coin where uh, the king of Assyria has sent his spokespeople saying, hey, if it's going to, it's going to be better for you if you just. Come and surrender. If not, I can't promise what's going to happen to you. Uh, so then Hezekiah gets this uh, response from his officials, and his his response is one of grief and sorrow. We see this. Uh, Hezekiah is seeking the counsel of Isaiah, uh, and we see this in Second Kings nineteen one through nineteen, Isaiah thirty seven one through twenty, and then even Second Chronicles thirty two are passages that are telling similar accounts here. Uh, and so he sends his representatives to inquire of Isaiah, who in turn. Uh, tell him to the, to report back that God will in fact protect and provide for his people by causing Sennacherib to withdraw and go fight somewhere else. And upon his departure, uh, he reminded Israel uh, that God can't save them. 
Uh, sorry, this is Sennacherib. So on one hand, we have this response from Isaiah saying God will provide, God will protect. Sennacherib is going to withdraw, go fight somewhere else. Uh, and so Isaiah or Hezekiah's response is the right one. I'm going to, I'm going to be in grief. I'm going to be in sorrow. In essence, I'm going to be desperate to say, God, I need you to work and show up. God says he's going to do that through Isaiah. Uh, so then we see Sennacherib actually withdraw, withdraws. He goes, uh, withdraws from Lachish to go fight. Uh, and a different, I think, oh shoot, I forgot off the top of my head. I just read it. Um, fights another kingdom. He says, and they're fighting and getting at war. But then he sends this reminder uh, to God's people, to Hezekiah, that God can't save him. Um, and he, when Hezekiah hears this threat, in essence, it's just a, rep- a repetition of what was already said. You're not going to overcome. God, we're going to prevail. This is just delaying the inevitable. Uh, you're going to lose. God can't save you. So Hezekiah hears this threat, uh, and then he takes this letter, which was in written form, and brings it to the Lord t- Lord's temple, and then prays that God would bring deliverance for, from Sennacherib because they mocked God. Uh, and so then we have this next section we jump into this week in God's answer through Isaiah. And so this comes in at 2 Kings 19, 20 to 37, as well as Isaiah 37. Uh, we see the response to Hezekiah of God's provision and victory over Sennacherib. So in essence, God shows up, he conquers and defeats Sennacherib, he has him withdraw, and God's going to prevail uh, and protect his people. And we get this poetic section and description, uh, which entails who Sennacherib actually fought against, which was God. So this description is, uh, who were you coming against? It's this uh, this declaration against Sennacherib. Who were you coming against? Who were you mocking? Who were you actually saying? Uh, the things you were saying to was not actually against my people. It is actually against me. Uh, and, and in so coming against me, which is God, I'm not God, but God's saying these things through Isaiah. Uh, there's going to be a toll you're going to take. Good clarification, though. I just want to be clear. I don't ever want to misspeak. Um, and in essence, he's saying Sennacherib will not be able to attack. He will go away and defeat uh, and the people of Israel. And there's this incredible analogy, incredible picture of the seeds taking root. There's going to be a harvest. There's going to be plentiful. Uh, but it's this picture of if God's people, Israel, will be able to stay rooted where they are, and they're going to enjoy the 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 fruit of their their rootedness, if that will, if that makes sense, so that Sennacherib can't conquer. He's not going to be able to conquer the city of Jerusalem. God's people will stay there and flourish um, in the land that God gave them. It really, for a time, we know that. Um, but there's this incredible response. God's provision rebukes Sennacherib, says, my people will actually be here established, healthy, and will enjoy the fruit of the land. Uh, and then we get this portion in 2 Kings chapter 19. This is continuation of what God is saying to, to King Sennacherib of Assyria. And it says this, and starting in verse 32, it says, Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city, shoot an arrow here, come before it with shield, or build up a siege ramp against it. He will go back the way he came. He will not enter the city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. Uh, and so there's this declaration, a final piece, final statement. You're not even going to be able to shoot an arrow at this city. I'm going to provide it. I'm going to defend it. Uh, and so then it says this in verse 35, it says, That night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyrians. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. And so King Sennacherib woke up, saw what happened, broke camp, and he left and returned home and lived in Nineveh. 
Uh, and so we see this incredible movement where God is declaring, you will not even be able to shoot an arrow. Sennacherib goes to bed one night, wakes up, 185,000 of his valiant warriors are defeated. Uh, he realizes, I'm not going to win. He turns, withdraws, tail between the legs, and goes home and lives in, in Nineveh. Uh, and then it says this, one day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sherezer struck him down with a sword and escaped to the land of Ararat. Then his son Asar had and became king in his place. So just like God prophesied through Isaiah, Sennacherib not only died, uh, he didn't, oh, sorry, he, not only did he not conquer Jerusalem and the people of Judah, he also died. And the irony of this, which I think is really funny, um, that I read in a note, so I can't even take it to my own credit. Uh, but when Sennacherib, if you remember, was saying, hey, God can't defeat you. God can't protect you. God can't defeat me. Uh, yet Sennacherib, when he goes home, he worships in his own temple of his God. His God couldn't even protect him from God and the temple, uh, which is pro- closer proximity. Uh, so there's this kind of this play on this moment where where Sennacherib dies, where he's struck down, is in the temple of his God, which is the place where his God should reside. Yet his God could not protect him in the very place he resides. And he was rebuking and mocking God saying, he won't be able to protect you in the city where you live. Uh, and so it's, it's this, this com- comical, humorous picture that's being played out here uh, in God's provision and victory over Sennacherib. We get this section in Second Chronicles as we continue reading. Uh, it details in short the defeat and death of Sennacherib uh, because of God's victory. Uh, and that kind of will wrap up the life of Sennacherib. We then shift into this section uh, about Hezekiah because he's still around, but we see Hezekiah become sick. It's, it's a terminal sickness. Um, and, and we get the, these accounts in Second Kings and Isaiah, as well as Second Chronicles, um, about this journey of sickness for Hezekiah. So Hezekiah becomes sick, and then he is revealed, he is told by Isaiah that he's going to die as a result of the sickness. Isaiah then departs from the news, sharing the news with Hezekiah. And Hezekiah does what I think any of us would do if we were shared with this news. He weeps. He He's laying in his bed. He's bed laden or bed on bed rest, I guess, a bed stricken because Bed-ridden. he's sick. Um, there you go. Uh, and he weeps and saying, God, please remember me and my faithfulness to you. And before Isaiah gets out of the temple, God tells him to go back and say to Hezekiah, hey, I heard your prayer. Uh, and because of what you what you prayed and what you asked, I will bring healing to you and I will give you a sign. And then Isaiah tells Hezekiah, you have one of two choices for a sign. One, we can make the sun go forward 10 steps. In other words, the position, the one of the ways that they were able to tell the progression of the day is the way the stairs were set up in the palace. And as the sun progressed to set, it would move down the stairs. Um, or in the morning, it would be up high on the stairs and the evening it would be low on the stairs. So that's just the, I mean, it's, it's, we all understand that in practice and in theory now. Um, but so he's given, I can either move the, f- the sun forward 10 steps or I can move it backward 10 steps. Uh, and so I, Hezekiah had the op- option of which one to choose. So he chooses, he says, it's far easier for the sun to move forward 10 steps. So let's say move it 10 back. Uh, and so that's what happens. The sun moves backward 10 steps. It goes up the stairs that the sunlight is showing, the line is, and it goes up 10 steps, in essence, to show uh, an answer and provision of God's healing and touch of Hezekiah's body. Hezekiah is then recovered, he's healed, uh, and he's set to live another 15 years because that was the part of the prophecy is when Isaiah came back, I've heard your prayer, I'm going to give you another 15 years of life, what do you want your sign to be? So he gains another 15 years of life. 
Uh, we get this little section in this portion of the reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 32, verses 24 to 32. Uh, so I'm just going to read them real quick. Uh, I feel like I'm just going to say this. It probably could have been placed a little bit later in our readings only because of some of the content, but uh, it does fit in this section as well. Uh, but it says this, in those days, Hezekiah became sick to the point of death. So he prayed to the Lord and he spoke to him to give a miraculous sign. However, because his heart was proud, this is a portion that we don't see in Second sec- Kings or in Isaiah. Because his heart was proud, Hezekiah didn't respond according to the benefit that had come to him. So there was wrath on him, Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself in the, for the pride of his heart, he and, his, and he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the Lord's wrath didn't come on him during Hezekiah's lifetime. So in this moment, there's this response of pride in Hezekiah's heart. He is humble. He humbles himself quickly and God's wrath is delayed. Uh, and then it says in verse 27, Hezekiah had abundant riches and glory and he made himself treasuries for silver and gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and every desirable item. He made warehouses for the harvest of grain, new wine, fresh oil, stalls of all kinds of cattle and pens for flocks. He made cities for himself and he acquired vast numbers of the flocks and herds for God gave him abundant possessions. This same Hezekiah blocked the outlet of the water, the upper Gihon and channeled it smoothly downward uh, and westward to the city of David. Hezekiah succeeded in everything he did. When the ambassadors of Babylon's rulers were sent to him to inquire about the miraculous sign that happened in the land, God left him to test him and discover what was in his heart. That's an important sentence to remember here. And then verse 32 says, as for the rest of the events of Hezekiah's reign and his deeds of faithful love, note that they are written in the visions of the prophet of Isaiah, son of Amos, and in the book of Kings of Judah and Israel. Uh, and so we get this kind of weird little excerpt as far as a detailing dates and events, um, but it is, we're coming to the end of Hezekiah's life. And there's the reflection, Hezekiah has the sickness, he is recovered, God performs this crazy miracle, uh, and we see these things play out. Um, But then we see in chapter 38, uh, we see the same similar instance, um, and this becomes the pride. This is where we begin to see, uh, actually, no, I'm going to stop there. I actually misread. This is important. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not misspeaking though, so that's a good thing. not, not that's not a shot against you, bro. Uh, Isaiah 38, 9 through 22. I actually want to read this because it's pretty remarkable. In the midst of his recovery, so Hezekiah, we shift back to Hezekiah's sickness and recovery, right? So we just kind of read a weird little snapshot that gave a little bit about it, but then kind of started wrapping up the details of his life. And then we jump back into Isaiah, where Isaiah details and shares a poem that Hezekiah wrote after he was sick and had recovered. Uh, and so I thought it would be kind of, it, it's interesting to get a little bit of insight uh, into what Hezekiah was thinking in as he wrote this poem. And since Evan loves poetry, especially biblical poetry, I thought it'd be fitting to read it today. Uh, it starts in chapter 10 of Isaiah 38. It says, and I said, in the prime of my life, I must go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will never see the Lord, the Lord and the land of the living. I will not look on humanity any longer with the inhabitants of what is passing away. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. I have rolled up my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. By nightfall, you make an end of me. I thought until the morning, he will break all my bones like a lion. By nightfall, you make an end of me. I chirp like a swallow or a crane. I moan like a dove. My eyes grow weak looking upward. Lord, I am oppressed. Support me. What can I say? He has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I will walk along slowly all of my years because of the bitterness of my soul. 
Lord, by such things people live, and in every one of them my spirit finds life. You have restored me to health and let me live. So stop for a second. You'll see he's detailing the events and what he was thinking and feeling in in the depths of despair, in the midst of his sickness. Uh, And you see he's, 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 in essence, in suffering. He's suffering hardcore. And then there's this shift we see that I just read in verse 16 that you have restored to me the health and let me live. Indeed, it was for my own well-being that I had such intense bitterness, but your love has delivered me from the pit of destruction, for you've thrown all of my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, only the living can thank you. As I do today, a father will make your faithfulness known to the children." The Lord is ready to save me. We will play stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. And so you see, you see what he's navigating. You see the, the intense suffering that he's navigating. And then you see the, his response in the midst of being healed. Uh, and I thought it was a really, it's a, it's a unique insight that we get into Hezekiah as he's navigating these, uh, this sickness, this terminal illness, and then the, the health and recovery. Uh, and then finally, as we're wrapping up this week's reading, we get what I call Hezekiah's folly. Hezekiah's folly. Uh, and in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 12 through 19, and Isaiah 39, uh, we see kind of this, this reality. If you go back to what I read earlier uh, in verse 30, what is it, 31 of 2 Chronicles chapter 32, when the ambassadors of Babylon's rulers were sent, it says that God left him to test him and discover what was in his heart. Uh, and so we see what was in Hezekiah's heart in this moment. Uh, Hezekiah at this point is better. Uh, Babylon sent letters and gifts to Hezekiah after hearing about his miraculous recovery. So there's this envoy, there's this tribute being paid to Hezekiah from Babylon. Babylon's trying to sync up, trying to create alliances, which is there's always an agenda attached to a gift. Uh, Back in that day, even probably today, there's two and some gifts. Um, And then when Hezekiah uh, reveals what's going on, he, he welcomes this envoy uh, and then we see what what the true condition of his heart is. Um, he shows Babylon his wealth, the strength of his kingdom. He shows what he has amassed, what he has accumulated. Uh, and it says that nothing was hidden from him, uh, hidden from the Babylonians. And this is where we realize and we see that Hezekiah's confidence in this time came not from God who saved him, healed him, provided for him, protected him or his people. It came in the wealth and the materials and the abilities of which he was able to do on his own strength. Uh, And so he had confidence in those things. And so even entertaining the Babylonians shows a willingness and a desire to trust in this alliance more than it is to trust in a God who created, who saved, who provided, who delivered them. Um, Isaiah shows up after these Babylonian representatives leave. He, He asks, who are they and what do they see? Uh, and then Hezekiah just simply reveals, well, I showed them everything. Nothing was hidden from them. Uh, and so then we see Isaiah's response to Hezekiah is this. It says, then Isaiah said, chap- Isaiah chapter 39, verses 5 to 8. It says, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of armies. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the, this is, this is, this to me is probably one of the most tragic statements uh, of Hezekiah's life and the things that he says. He says, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. 
for he thought there will be peace and security during my lifetime. In other words, he was so concerned with his own well-being and he didn't care about what's next. He didn't care about future generations. He didn't care about his kids or his grandkids or the the next uh, people, next group of people, next generation of God's people. He said, hey, there's just going to be peace and security during my lifetime. That seems good to me. Uh, and and maybe there's some repentance in his in his statement there. Maybe there's some grief. Uh, but at the end of the day, the, what, what has been reported here shows and reveals to me the pride and the self-seeking mentality that existed in Hezekiah. So it's kind of a bummer way to end the the story of Hezekiah this week. Um, obviously, we'll pick it up next week where Hezekiah will uh, will read about his death, um, and because that is coming, he's not still alive today. Uh, but it is; it's a little disappointing to see he God heals him, God answers his prayer, he gets a little prideful, celebrates all of his great wealth and amassed. Uh, all the things that he's amassed. It reminds me of King Nebuchadnezzar that's going to be coming in the few weeks. We're going to read about him showing up at Nebuchadnezzar, Looks stands on his kingdom, same thing. Look what I've done, and there's punishment and recourse for that action as well. Um, but Hezekiah is content with his own life and his own well-being and doesn't care about the future destruction of God's wrath poured out on his people be- because there's going to be peace and security during his lifetime. And that's a sad thing for me to read as we wrap it's up true. some of Hezekiah's life today. Well, that, that does wrap it up for Hezekiah's life, but well, mostly, but uh, we, we will talk about what we learned today. Uh, for me, I already alluded to it, but it's kind of just the, this picture of God's judgment or God's discipline not being a final severing. And I think sometimes that's the way we can look at it is uh, like when, when God allows uh, painful things to happen, when God is disciplining his people, when God allows those things to happen to us, it can almost feel like he's done with us. Um, but it, it reminds me of, yeah, thinking to when parents discipline, like a good, when a good parent disciplines, you do what needs to be done. You, you create the punishment, uh, you set your child straight, but then you're not like, you're no longer my son or my daughter anymore. Right? Like you, you bring them back into relationship. Uh, and it's the same way with God, where we see that the people of Israel are not abandoned. Uh, and, and God promises future ransom, future redeeming of them, just like we are not abandoned by God. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I'm thankful for his patience, uh, which it's funny. It's ironic because the tension I feel at times is as I look at the end of Hezekiah's life, and it's probably because it was the last thing I read um, coming into this week's podcast and talking through it, uh, but just the disappointment that exists and how subtle and how real pride is in our lives um, and how easy it is in the midst of, I mean, Hezekiah, again, I kind of alluded to it too. Hezekiah did incredible things. He fortified a city. He came up with creative and innovative ways to shore up uh, life and vitality with with water, a water source within the city. Um, But when he gets sick, he cries out to God in humility. Um, God shows up, answers his prayer, gives him 15 more years, excuse me, of life. It's all incredible. And then at the end, you see him, look what I have. Look Look at all of the the things that I've come up with. Look at all my richness. Look at my wealth. Check me out. Uh, and it, it's it's kind of disappointing to see uh, that that's the way it ended. And it, it just challenges me to like how easy and how subtle pride is uh, to creep in, to look at something that I've accumulated, look at something that I have done, look at my own abilities and my gifts. And it's not to say we can't celebrate the gifts God has given us, but it's the heart. I mean, even go, that's like to see God left him when the Babylonians showed up to see what was in his heart. What's going to show up? What's going to come? And so if my heart is to celebrate my own and vindicate my own worth and well-being and not attribute it and be thanks and gra- and have gratitude for God, then that's that's a 
like that's a negative thing. And so pride is so subtle. And I think this is a recurring theme in my life and it's a recurring theme in humanity that pride is so subtle and so simple because at our, at our core, we are broken people that need the grace of Jesus, uh, which pride is actively against if we're, if we're not careful. And so just being trying to be more guarded with how do I celebrate my life and what I have and the possessions I have. And remember, it's God who gives me the ability to create wealth. It's God who provides for me in ways that only he can. Uh, and just being reminded of, of gratitude that comes from understanding God is the giver of all good things. Uh, so I think that was the, the, the application for me this week. Yep, that's a great one. Uh, well, listener, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our resources online on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.